Hey, let's grab our Bibles or open up your Bible app if you've got that. And I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. So in the Bible, you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book in the Bible. And we're going to be in the very last chapter of of that book, Deuteronomy chapter 34. And as you turn there, I want to share with you about a book that I've been reading recently. It's a book um, that I've been reading with a friend called Nudge. Anybody heard of Nudge in here? I don't see, hey, I see a hand, there we go. It is co-authored by Cass Sunstein, a professor at Harvard Law. Um, and without like unpacking everything about this book, it's, it's about like our behavior is influenced often by nudges Um, And what they would say is to make our lives longer, healthier, and better. I want you to think about it. Like, you've even been nudged today whether you realized it or not. If you got in your car today and you did not buckle your seatbelt, what's going to happen? Within about 10 seconds, there's probably going to be a beep that's going off. Anybody guilty today on the way here? Anybody? Okay, there we go. I see you. Um, All right. Um, so, like, that's a nudge. It's, it's helping you save your life, right? Like, hey, put your seatbelt on. Um, or if, you're, if your car's getting low on gas, what's going to happen? You're going to get a warning light. It may even start, like, I don't know, maybe some of these newer cars, like, start yelling at you, stop and get gas. I don't know. Like, my car's, like, over 10 years old, so I don't, I don't get that. Um, what about this? In these newer cars, you veer out of your lane. It might even beep at you. Some of these, like, I, I long one day I'm going to get to experience this, but, like, it actually pulls the, like, it back in the right lane for you. Like, that is a really good thing. Or who's done this? You've crafted your email that you want to upload an attachment to, but you hit send before you uploaded the attachment. What does Gmail do now? Before it goes through, it asks, did you forget to include your attachment? Has anybody experienced that? Hey, I have, and I'm like, thank you. And then you go and include the attachment. Those are examples of nudges. In fact, you were just nudged a second ago to take a next step with a discipleship group. I, we won't dig in there. But, like, we're, we're nudging you even here at Redemption Hill to take next steps at our church. But sometimes we may even feel like nudges are kind of, like, manipulating us. I'm going to, like, here's, here's one that frustrates me recently. Um, If you go to your favorite coffee shop and you order your latte or Americano, whatever you order, you pay for it, and and as soon as you pay, what happens? You're asked for a tip. Now, look, this is coming from a guy who was a server at P.F. Chang's for a couple of years. So, like, I get service industry. I'm not like, but if I haven't even received and tasted my coffee, what am I tipping you on? Like, I'm just, I'm just trying to understand this. Like, I'm supposed to tip you before I can even say, I actually got it, and does it taste any good? But it goes even further. When you look at that tip menu, you're presented, you're nudged with some options. And somebody's orchestrated what options you have. Some of these might even start as high as like 20%. or 30%. And I'm like, are there other options? Now, almost always, there is another option, but you've got to work harder if you want a different option. 
you're being nudged. I'll give you another example. You got, I could go all day with nudges. This book, like, it's got me thinking, man. I can't go without a day. Like, am I being nudged? You watch your favorite episode on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever. You finish the episode and what happens? There's a little box. The next episode will begin in three, two, one. And you don't even have to do anything. You can like binge Netflix. Maybe some of you are like half asleep right now because that's what happened last night without even like you've actually got to turn your TV off if you want it to stop playing. You are being nudged. But I would say this, another way to nudge me to watch the next episode is just to craft a good story. Does anybody love a good story or a good novel? I mean, what gets you turning to the next chapter in the novel or or watching the next episode? Like, a good story is going to have tension that's going to be, or some conflict that's going to be resolved But then almost always, a new one's introduced at the very end. And you're like, I want to know what happens. And they're like, in a week, come back and watch the next episode. Or don't hit the next button and it'll just fly up for you. A good story invites you in with conflict, tension, and resolution. As we come to the scriptures today, I don't know what your approach is to the Bible. But the Bible is a story. It's a story that you're not just reading. It's a story that you are a part of. The whole Bible is is framed this way. The very first words in the Bible are, in the beginning, which implies what? There's an end. It's crafted from the very beginning that, that this isn't just some rule book that we're trying to come away to, it's, it's a story. It's God's story. And many have said the, the bookends, Genesis, and then what's the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Those are the two bookends that help us understand everything that's happening in between. You have creation and you have new creation. In fact, an author that's been influential for me A guy by the name of N.T. Wright says this. All the stories of the scripture must in some way be connected to the story, the meta story of God's redemption found in Christ. Every little story you read about is connected to God's larger story. And I believe this helps us. Like what I'm trying to do is help us as we read the Bible. Because here are two temptations you're going to face as you read the Bible. One is what I would call proof texting. Proof texting is where you just go pull a verse out of the Bible and you isolate it from the story. When you do that, you can make that verse mean whatever you want it to mean. That's not how we read the Bible. That verse is a part of a story. You've got to understand the story if you're going to understand the verse. The other that maybe, maybe is even a greater temptation for us is that the Bible just becomes some kind of rule book. They're like, okay, these are all the rules, and this is how we go apply the rules. And so like, with that approach, we're like, what are the rules, and then how should we go apply them? But I want to propose there's two key questions 
when thinking about the Bible a story that you must ask and wrestle with every time you read the text. The first one is this. What is the story? It's a simple question. But just simply ask it. What is the story? And then second, where are you in the story? If we don't make that explicit, we can at times read the Bible and put, our, put ourselves in the story when we weren't there. We've got to understand that. And so here's what we see. As we read this story, there are all kind of cliffhangers and tensions. But as J- Jacob introduced last week, the whole point is that the story is all about Jesus. Jesus is what it's all about. He introduced last week. He took us to Genesis chapter 12. And we learned about a guy named Abraham, right? Does anybody remember the three promises that God made to Abraham? You can talk back to me. It's okay. Land. What else? Nation and blessing. He took us to this key text in Genesis 12 that I'm going to send you, go to the land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. So what happens? I'm going to pick the story up. What we're doing over the next few months is just working through the Old Testament as we understand the story and how it connects to Jesus. So we go from Abraham, and the story carries along. Hey, let me just give you a sidebar here. This is not going to be a traditional sermon that I've preached to you. So if you're like looking for like what are the three points to write down, you're going to be frustrated. Here's what I want you to do. Like free yourself of writing the three points and just listen to the story. Like I want to invite you in, engage with me, and don't be worried about the three things to write down. Y'all with me? Okay. So it goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. What's Jacob's name changed to? Israel. So like when you're like, where does Israel come from? It comes from a very real person. His name was Jacob. And then Israel, Jacob, takes his sons and he blesses them. And that's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. So we have that at the end of Genesis. The book of Genesis ends and you have these 12 tribes, this nation that God had promised to Abraham, that God is beginning to bless. Along this story, though, we hear about this guy named Joseph. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, right? And where does he end up? He ends up in Egypt. And what happens? What his brothers meant for evil, God uses for good. God blesses Joseph, and God elevates him to a place of power and authority. And what happens in Israel with Jacob and his family is there's a famine. Where do they go? There's a famine, and say they go to Egypt. They're looking for provision, for God to provide and care for them. And guess who provides for them? The very brother that they sold into slavery, God elevates and uses to provide for his people. And so that's how Israel ends up in Egypt. And so that's where they are. But that Pharaoh who had blessed Joseph, he dies. And what happens is the Israelites are then forced into slavery in Egypt. And they cry out to God. 
And God raises up a leader among them. Who does God raise up? He raises up a guy named Moses. You've probably heard the story. Moses encounters God at a burning bush. Literally, like, God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am who I am. This word that we like sing Jehovah or Yahweh or you hear in the Old Testament that says the Lord. He revealed himself to Moses and he tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to use you to lead my people to the land. Right? Blessing nation and land. And so how does God do that? God says, Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and I'm going to send plague after plague. How many are they? Ten plagues. Ten of them. He's going before Pharaoh. Let us go. He shows God's power. The tenth plague. Many of you are probably familiar with it. It's what's called now the Passover. On the tenth plague, God tells Israel, you are to, you're going to sacrifice a perfect lamb, and the blood is going to be put over your doorpost. And when I pass over, when I see that blood, I'm going to pass over, and that's where you are going to be saved. And so God, Israelites do that. They pass over. The plague comes. The Israelites leave, and they come to the Red Sea. What happens at the Red Sea? God's power again on display. He parts the Red Sea. Israelite, the Israelites go through that. Then the sea comes on the Egyptians. Where is God leading his people? He's leading them to the land that he had promised to Abraham. And so he, what he does is he brings them to Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? This is where we get the Ten Commandments. Almost everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. They go up. Moses goes up on the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments, including the law. But it's more than just the Ten Commandments. God's also giving them instructions for the tabernacle, where his presence would be with them. And they come down from Mount Sinai, headed where? To the land. And this is where I want us to pick up. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible there with you, we've got it on the screen up here. The Word of God says this. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses the servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. 
than the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were in it, were ended. What's going on here? God takes Moses to the edge of this land that he had promised to Abraham. And he's standing on Mount Nebo. It's this, this peak that was um, prominent peak east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. And on a clear day, he could see all of Canaan. Like, take a virtual journey with me. Who's been to Wright's Tower? Anybody? I, man, it's a beautiful tower right here in the fells. You walk up to Wright's Tower, right? I think we got a picture of it back here. This is when I went with our Summerlink Jensen team a few years ago. You look out over Wright's Tower and you can be like, hey, look, like you got Arlington and Cambridge and you start coming down in the background. You can see Fenway and the Prue and John Hancock and the financial district and you keep coming around and you've got East Boston and, and the Atlantic Ocean and, and there's Chelsea. This is, the, this is what was happening. Moses had a view of the land. But then God, God told him something. What does God say? As he's looking at this land that God had promised, he says, this is the promise that I gave to Abraham. You can see it with your eyes, but you shall not go there. Wow. The Lord refused to let Moses into the land. In fact, this is the eighth time in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is forbidden to enter into the land. This was not new news to him, which should lead us to ask the question, why was he not allowed to enter into the land? You see, when Israel departed Mount Sinai, after receiving the law and the Ten Commandments and with instructions for the tabernacle, we expect them to reach the land in a matter of months. It wasn't because the land was so far, but how long does it take them to get to this point? 40 years. I'm 42 years old. Just to like give you perspective. Like the span of my life is how long it took them to get to the edge where Moses is standing on this peak looking out over the land and God's saying, you're not going in there. Why? Deuteronomy chapter 1 tells us the story. So I've got it up here, but if you wanted to flip over to chapter 1, you're welcome to do that. Here's what it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 1. Um, they come to the edge of the land, and this is what Moses tells them in, in verse 21. Go up. Take possession as the Lord, the, the God of your fathers has told you. Don't fear or be dismayed. Let's go get the land. And so what do the people do? They say, hey, before we go get the land, let's spy it out. We want to make sure it's safe. So they, they take 12 men, one from each tribe, to go spy it out. And this is what, th these 12 men, they come back with fruit in their hands of the land, and this is what they say. It is a good land that the Lord is giving us. But what did the people do? Moses says this in verse 26. Yet you would not go up, but rebelled, rebelled against the command of the Lord your God 
And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the land of the, the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. What happens? They murmur and they are covered with fear. But Moses says this to them in verse 29. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Why? You need to hear this. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. In other words, Moses is saying, did you not, like, don't forget the 10 plagues. You were there when he parted the Red Sea. Surely he's gonna provide for us. Don't fear those people. God is great and he will provide. But the people did not believe the Lord. And so guess what? In verse 35, Moses says that this is what the Lord said. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. Not one of them except for two people. Who's that? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb were two of the 12 that came back and are like, let's go get the land. It's good. The Lord's giving it to us. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 34. Moses is up on this peak. He's looking out, and God reminds him again, you are not going into the land. And it says he died outside of the land. It says that no one knows where he's buried. But then we have this interesting statement in verse 7. It tells us Moses was 120 years old. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. In other words, like, here are a few other translations. The NET says his eye was not dull or NIV. His eyes were not weak or stated positively. The NLT says his eyesight was clear. He didn't need glasses. In other words, I'm going to come back to that thought. His vigor, the NET says, nor had his vitality departed. Or the NIV, nor his strength gone. Or NLT, positively, he was as strong as ever. Here's the point. The reason Moses died was not because of old age. The reason he didn't enter the land is because he couldn't physically get there. That's not the reason. He didn't go into the land because he was facing the punishment of these people that did not believe and trust the Lord. And we're talking about Moses here. Like one of the greatest men in the examples in the Old Testament of God's power displayed. As we're going to see later in the text. It's, it's someone that, that the scriptures say the Lord spoke to him face to face. So now I want us just to zoom out here for a second. Are we having fun yet? 
You guys in the story here with me? I, want, I got a picture here. I want, I want us to th- see where we're at here in light of the story of the Old Testament. So check this out. This is a picture that says the law, the prophets, and the writings here. This is the structure of the Hebrew Bible. If I had a Hebrew Bible here with me, this is how it would be divided. This would have been the Bible most likely that Jesus and his disciples were using in, in, in the early first century there. And so the law, you can see here, Genesis to Deuteronomy. Where we're reading here is the last structure section here of the law. And what, what Moses is doing here in the book of Deuteronomy, think of it as his last sermon before he dies. It's like, hey, John, you're about to die and you've got one more shot at Redemption Hill. Give it what you got. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's Moses in light of all of his history with them. He's preaching and he's pleading with these people. And so just like remember the context. He knows that he's just spent 40 years wandering in the desert. He knows he's not going into the land. And this is the sermon that he gives to his people. In other words, God in his grace is going to give Israel a second chance. And Moses is saying, you can't repeat the mistakes of the previous generation. In other words, don't blow it again like we did. So there now, this is where we come to Deuteronomy 34 verse 9. I think we've got that up here. Deuteronomy 34 verse 9 says this. It says, so Moses has died. He's not going in the land. They buried him. It says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses has laid his hand on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. We've got Joshua now. Moses knew he couldn't go into the land. And so... What we've seen now is is Moses has laid his hand on Joshua. Joshua's been empowered with authority. You're now going to lead these people. But let's go back to this sermon that Moses preaches. And I don't know how long it was. It probably was a little bit longer than mine. If he's preaching a sermon to ensure that failure doesn't occur again, Here's how he's motivating them. He's motivating obedience by constantly reminding them that God is faithful and he will keep his promise to Abraham. God will do it. God is faithful even in spite of Israel's persistent sin. But as Joshua is getting ready to lead the people into the land, there are massive question marks. Like, As I'm watching this story unfold, I'm wondering some things like this. How are they going to live once they get in the land? Will they experience the the prosperity and blessing of God? Or will they disobey just like this previous generation and face God's judgment and punishment? If I were to summarize Moses' sermon and give you like a three-point sermon, Hey, there's my three points for today. Here you go. It would be something like this. 
You're about to go into the land. And if you are going to enjoy God's blessings, he requires faithful obedience. If you do that, God will heap blessing upon blessing. Go read about this in in chapter 28. We're not going to go there today. That's point number one. Point number two of his sermon would have been this. But if you fall into idolatry, and get this, they're about to go into a land where there's there's all kind of foreign gods, that they're going to be tempted with idolatry. If you worship the gods of the nations and you disobey me, you will experience not God's blessing, but God's curse, which will mean you're going to be exiled out of the land and away from God's presence. Just like Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed, were kicked out of the garden, and just how now Moses is not able to go into the land. But that's not the end of a sermon. The third part of a sermon, and we see this in chapters 29 and ending here in verse 34, is Moses concludes by giving a sketch of predicting out what's going to happen to Israel. And guess what Moses predicts? Do you think it's success or failure? Moses multiple times says, I don't expect that you're going to be faithful. In fact, if you were to compare the number of blessings to the number of curses, it is by far, he lists more curses. It's not even close, which is looting. Uh, like you're, as a reader, you're like, man, I'm, I'm expecting the curse is going to happen. And that's what Moses said would happen. And, and here's the strange paradox of the book. Moses is calling them, obey, be faithful in light of God's grace. And yet at the very same time, he's fully convinced that Israel's going to blow it. Be faithful, but I'm pretty sure you're not going to do it. Encouraging, right? In other words, as as we failed in the desert, you are going to fail in the land. And here's why. The law can't be kept even by one of the greatest guys we have here. Like Moses is not entering into the land. In fact, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I think what's happening in the Pentateuch, the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, is a contrast between Abraham, who believed God before the law, and Moses, who was given the law and is not entering in the land. And which one should we look at? I'll answer that in a little bit. But what's the primary reason that Moses gives for the negative outlook that he gives on Israel? Why does he not think they're going to be faithful? He says it's their hearts. In fact, Moses' third point is this. What they needed most was for God to provide a solution to change their hearts from the inside out. And until that happened, there would not be lasting faithful obedience. In Deuteronomy 30, I've got this on the screen here for us. 
this is what Moses says. Don't clock out with me. Like, this is good, guys. Hang in here with the story. I know we've got a lot of reading, but this is good. He says this in Deuteronomy 30. And with all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse. In other words, you're going to get in the land. You're going to experience it. And that's what happens. Like, under David and Solomon, there is great blessing upon Israel. But they also experience the curse, which I've set out before you. And you call to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. In other words, they're going to be exiled and scattered among the nations. Moses is predicting this in Deuteronomy 30. We know what happens. It says, you're going to return to the Lord your God. You, your children, you obey his voice and all that I command you with all your heart, with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he's going to gather you from among all the peoples where the Lord your God is scattered. And he continues, if you're outcast or in the other uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And this is what he says. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. We hear this often in the New Testament. This work of God in my heart, but it's right here in Deuteronomy. In other words, Israel fails and God will judge them, but God will not fail to keep his covenant with them. He will provide the solution to restore them from exile and grant them a new beginning with new hearts. We already see here the groundwork being laid for what's called the new covenant. The later prophets, go read Jeremiah 31, go read Ezekiel 36. They're going to talk about how God is going to institute a new covenant where he's going to pour his spirit upon his people and he will give us a new heart. And guess how this is accomplished? It is accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we come to the New Testament, we hear words like this in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 says this. I think we've got it on the screen. For no one is a Jew who, who is one who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Or what about this? Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. In him also you were, and he's not talking to Jews here. He's talking to Gentiles. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of what? Of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, we'll see that next week, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God, of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt and stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Maybe you can relate with Israel. You see what God demands from his commands, and you see your inability to to be faithful. Look, this is me. I'm not standing here preaching before you because John Chasteen has somehow figured out how to perfectly obey God. Ask my wife and kids. I'm standing here today because I've responded to the good news of Jesus, which is this, through faith and trust in him, He changes my heart. He is the one who puts his spirit in me and makes me a new person and empowers me to obey and keep God's commands. That is at the heart of the gospel. At Redemption Hill, this isn't come here and try to figure out some spiritual truths and rules that you can go and apply. It's come and die to yourself and make Jesus everything. I gotta keep moving. We've got three more verses And these are three of my favorite. So when we go back to Deuteronomy 34, this is how Deuteronomy ends. We're introduced to Joshua, and then we hear these three verses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel, like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs And the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. I want to hang in here with me. I want to dig into these three verses by asking a series and, and answering a few questions here. Okay. And the first one is this. What is the significance of a prophet? Like the, the, the end of the law says, there's not arisen a prophet like Moses. If we would have been reading through Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 18, this is what we would have come across. God would have said this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God promised, like Moses, there would be a prophet. They should have been looking. Who's this, who's this promised one? Who's this prophet that God's going to send, that he's going to bring? Which leads to this question. Who could have made such an assessment? Like, there has not arisen a prophet like this, like Moses, whom God knew face to face. Who could have said that? Which leads us to another question. Who wrote this last chapter? Like, traditionally, what have you been told? Who wrote Genesis to Deuteronomy? You're right, but he's dead. I I guess it's possible, like God could have foretold, and he wrote this, but I don't think that's the case. And for those of you like wondering like where I stand on scripture, to suggest that there was another author besides Moses who wrote this final chapter does not undermine that Moses wrote the rest of it or that this was inspired by God. Okay, I fully affirm that this is aspired and the word of God. But I also want us to wrestle with this. 
there have been four potential names that, that I've looked at that, that people propose on who wrote it. One, Joshua. Why Joshua? He knew Moses, right? Like, he could have recorded this. So possibly Joshua. Another one was Eleazar, Aaron's son, who was the next high priest. Another possibility is Samuel, an Old Testament prophet. I'm going to give you my opinion because we're not told. A fourth option is Ezra. Ezra, as we know, like later on, we have the book of Ezra. He was responsible for updating the script of the Hebrew Bible. The Babylonian Talmud attributes Ezra as the one who completed the updating, collecting, and arranging of the books of the Old Testament. And Ezra would have been somebody historically that could have seen prophet after prophet come and made a comment since Moses. Yes, we've had prophets, but there has not arisen a prophet like Moses who knew God face to face. John Selhammer, my Hebrew professor, notes this. The scope of such a comment reflects the viewpoint of one who knows Israel's history from its beginning to its end. It is the view of one for whom the whole of Israel's prophets have come and gone, each having been dismissed without a word identifying them as the prophet like Moses. This passage blows me away. Because it's not just what God's doing here in Deuteronomy, but I want to zoom back out real quick as we wrap up. I think I've got a picture here. Let's zoom back out to that picture. Look here with me at the whole Old Testament Bible. We're at the end of Deuteronomy. And the way it ends is expecting and looking. There's a prophet coming. You should be looking forward. Then you go to the next section, the prophets. It begins in Joshua. What do we hear in Joshua? We hear Joshua. It begins this way. Hey, Joshua, be strong, courageous. Do everything that's written in the law of Moses. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. In other words, look back. Keep thinking about all the things that Moses said. How does that middle section end? You end with the 12. The last book of the minor prophets is Malachi. The way Malachi ends in Malachi 4 it's looking forward, and it says this, remember the law of my servant Moses. In other words, don't forget, you're looking for a prophet like Moses, and I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah. It's looking forward. Every single one of these key sections of the Hebrew Bible has you expecting God's provision. You come to the writing section, the Psalms. How does it begin? Psalm 1, blessed is the man right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. It's in the law. And he says this, on his law, he meditates day and night. So you've got this last section, the Psalms, look back, meditate on Moses, meditate on Moses. And then that section ends with 2 Chronicles 36, verse 23. And the last words of the Hebrew Bible are this, let him go up. This is not an accident. If you're here and you're like exploring Jesus and Christianity, 
Like this is one of the strong, one of the stronger arguments for me. How does this happen? There is, there is a coherency in the Old Testament that conveys there's not just multiple authors, there's one author. And it is God writing his story on what he's doing in history. So what should be our response? Deuteronomy ends. There's not a Rizza prophet like Moses who knew God face to face. This final chapter turns our gaze beyond Moses and the history of Israel to what God's going to do in a future work of fulfilling his, his promises through a prophet like Moses. So who is this prophet? It's someone like Moses who knew God face to face. It's someone who displayed mighty works and powers and wondrous signs. Do you know anyone like that? The point. Jesus is the true and better Moses who changes hearts, gives eternal life, and leads a new exodus to God's promised land, his new creation. Do you know him? When John the Baptist stepped on the scene, they said, are you the prophet? He said, no. The Samaritan woman calls Jesus a prophet. Later on in John 6, they say, surely he indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Later in Acts 3, Peter preaches a sermon. He explicitly quotes Deuteronomy 18 and calls Jesus the prophet. Jesus, when he was on this earth, went to the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. And who did he meet there? Moses and Elijah. And a voice from heaven comes down and says this, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In other words, he's the prophet. And now here's what you got to get. Jesus isn't just like Moses. Jesus is the prophet of prophets. Like, he's not just pointing to someone else. He's saying salvation is found in me. He's saying life is found in me. Forgiveness, salvation is found in me. He's not just revealing God's truth. He is God. Today, his words offer up life to all who will listen. And so as Moses preached to Israel, I would plead with you, Jesus has come. Look to him, trust him, and embrace him. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, in a lot of ways we can relate to Israel because we see our own sinful hearts. But God, we look and see your constant grace and favor. And so God, God, would you help us not murmur and be ungrateful like the Israelites? God, would you help us not live in unbelief? But God, would you give us truly eyes to see Christ as this prophet like Moses? And God, may we listen to him and God, may you give us life through him. 
God, we love you, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have a prayer team down front um, as the band leads us. And maybe for you today, it's like maybe you're wrestling with and you're like, hey, I want to hear more or I want to talk more with somebody about what it looks like to embrace and trust in Jesus. They would love to pray with you, to talk with you, or maybe there's just something else that resonated with you as you listen to the sermon today that you want to come pray with. Come forward and pray as we sing and respond.